science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's well, welcome aboard. At one time, what were officers of the court in China required to carry in their mouth when addressing the emperor? That's one question. And the uh, second one. When immigrants came to the U.S. through Ellis Island, doctors examined them for trachoma. What part of the body did they examine? And we still have one question left over from last week when I asked, how many heart symbols there are in a deck of cards? We did not get a correct answer. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, and I enjoy chatting with you here on Sunday afternoons about various uh, aspects of science. And uh, I throw a few questions your way to kind of tickle your mind and uh, educate us at the same time. 514-790-0800 is the number to call. And you can also text us at 514-800. And of course, if you have any science-oriented question, we can attempt to deal with that as well. Let me just repeat our questions for today. At one time, what were officers of the court in China required to carry in their mouth when addressing the emperor? That's one. Uh, when immigrants came to the U.S. through Ellis Island, doctors examined them for trachoma. What part of the body did they examine? And the uh, question left over from last week, I'm wondering about the number of heart symbols there are in a deck of cards. The holiday season, you know, is a great time for entertainment. Hey, the Cirque du Soleil comes to the Bell Center. Uh, new movies are released and the Grinch steals Christmas uh, one more time. But back in the 19th century, London, the hottest ticket was to Michael Faraday's celebrated Christmas lecture at the Royal Institution of Great Britain. The response to these public lectures was so enthusiastic that it resulted in the creation of the first one-way street in London, Albemarle Street, had to be converted to one-way traffic to ease the congestion due to all the carriages bringing people to the lectures. The Royal Institution was founded in 1800 by leading British scientists under the guidance of Benjamin Thompson, and uh, it was for, quote, diffusing the knowledge and facilitating the general instruction of useful mechanical inventions and improvements and for teaching by courses of philosophical lectures and experiments the application of sciences to the common purpose of life. Thompson, perhaps better known as Count Rumford, was by all accounts a ruthless, arrogant, cunning, devious, unprincipled womanizer who was also a philanthropist and a clever scientist. His inventions included a kitchen stove and a percolating coffee pot, items proudly exhibited at the institution. While the scientific displays were popular, it was the Institute's public lectures on natural philosophy that brought out the crowds. The most famous of these philosophical lectures were the Christmas lectures given to young people during the holidays. 
especially after Michael Faraday took over as lecturer in 1825. With his classic lecture on the chemical history of a candle, first given in 1848, Faraday amazed his audience by spending the whole evening talking about the science behind the burning of a candle. There is not a law under which any part of this universe is governed which does not come into play and is not touched upon in these phenomena, he began. Then he went on to discuss every known nuance of a candle flame. Three things are needed to start a flame, Faraday explained. A fuel, which is the candle wax, oxygen, which comes from the air, and a source of ignition, which is a match. If combustion were perfect, the only products would be water and carbon dioxide. When the wick is first lit, Faraday explained, it melts a little of the wax, which is drawn up the wick where it then vaporizes. It is actually the wax vapor that burns. Bonds between carbon and hydrogen atoms are weak, and bonds between hydrogen and oxygen and between carbon and oxygen form. Energy is needed to break chemical bonds and energy is released when bonds are formed. In the case of combustion, more energy is released by the formation of bonds than is required to break the bonds in the fuel. Hence, the extra energy is released as heat. For complete combustion, a high temperature has to be achieved and an adequate oxygen supply has to be maintained. If these conditions are not met, soot forms, as it does in the cooler yellow regions of the flame. Indeed, the yellow color, as Faraday enlightened the audience, is due to tiny glowing particles of soot. When combustion is complete, as when alcohol burns, the flame is blue. Faraday demonstrated incomplete combustion by placing a spoon in the yellow part of the candle flame, where it immediately became covered with soot. Instead of reacting with oxygen, carbon atoms had linked together, much as they do in graphite, to form lamp black or carbon black. Not a totally useless material, Faraday explained, as it can be used to make pigments and ink. Were Faraday to give his lecture today, he would undoubtedly point out the use of lamp black to reinforce the strength of rubber in tires, and of course would discuss the role of combustion products in the greenhouse effect. Why does the candle itself not catch fire? Faraday asked. Because the wax, even when melted, just doesn't get hot enough. In fact, turning a candle upside down will extinguish it as the cool wax runs over the wick. So then, how does a candle burn at all? Melted wax is drawn up the wick by capillary action just like water is drawn up a paper towel. And that small amount of wax is then vaporized by the flame and it's the hot wax vapor that reaches ignition temperature and burns. To demonstrate this, Faraday blew out a candle and relit it by holding a flame near but not touching the wick. The flame, he explained, travels along the hot wax vapor trail which is still rising from the wick. Well, you know what? You can give this a try at home with a candle and a match. Just blow out the flame and hold the match an inch or so from the wick and the candle will light as if by magic. If you would like to see even more magic, get your hands on some of the 
trick candles that will automatically relight after being blown out. The secret here lies in the small particles of magnesium incorporated into the wick. Blowing extinguishes the candle flame because the wax vapor is cooled below its ignition temperature, but the smoldering magnesium stays hot and it will relight the vapor. To put the candle out permanently, the magnesium has to be cooled by dipping the wick into water. After it dries, the self-lighting candle can be used again. Interestingly enough, this idea came from the use of incendiary bombs during the Second World War. The bombs contained magnesium that burned with a brilliant flame and set fire to anything they landed on. Michael Faraday didn't perform this particular stunt, but he could have. He was actually the first scientist to isolate significant amount of magnesium, which he did by passing an electric current through molten magnesium chloride. That element itself was discovered by Sir Humphrey Davy, who had been Faraday's mentor and had been the first lecturer at the Royal Institution to become a draw for London's fashionable society. While Davy made many important discoveries, including the minor safety lamp, he is said to have made his most important discovery in uh, enlisting Michael Faraday at the Royal Institution. Well, the Royal Institution is a, a holy place for scientists because uh, in the basement you have the Faraday Museum where some of Faraday's original items can be seen in a showcase. And uh, you can view his original electric motor first made in 1921, his original generator made in 1931, as well as the transformer made the same year. Those three inventions have uh, changed the world. Today, electricity is generated exactly the way that uh, Faraday described with his original dynamo or his generator. And of course, we use transformers all the time and our electric motors power our cars, raise our garage doors, drive our washing machines, drive our dryers and numerous other uh, commodities. And uh, that's why at Christmas time, I always think back to Michael Faraday. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. You know what is the most popular flavoring agent in the world? A lot of people would say vanilla, but it's not. The answer is menthol. It's a popular flavor ingredient in candies, but you'll also find it in all sorts of other products. Thousands of tons are produced every year, either synthetically or through extraction from peppermint or corn mint plants. To underline the importance of menthol production, it's noteworthy that the 2001 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Japanese chemist Roy Noyori for coming up with an effective synthetic process. Due to its topical anesthetic effect, 
Menthol can be found in sore throat remedies, creams for minor ailments such as sprains or razor burn. Menthol also has a decongestant effect, accounting for its use in products such as Vicks VapoRub, as well as in a variety of decongestants, none of which work really well. Then there is the cool, fresh taste that people enjoy in mouthwashes and in cigarettes. In cigarettes, menthol reduces the harshness of smoke and the irritation from nicotine. That is why tobacco companies have relied on the effects of menthol to make cigarettes more appealing to new smokers. Studies have also shown that menthol cigarettes increase the likelihood of becoming addicted to cigarettes. That is why the U.S. Food and Drug Administration intends to ban menthol cigarettes and cigars. Estimates are that with a menthol ban, by 2026, cigarette smoking would decline by 15%, saving about 16,000 lives a year. There's nothing inherently dangerous about menthol, of course, in the cigarette. So there's no issue with menthol flavoring uh, in candies and such. In fact, as I said, it's the most widely used flavoring agent in the world. Of course, there's something inherently dangerous about smoking cigarettes, menthol flavored or not. The issue is that people may be more likely to smoke cigarettes if they are menthol flavored. All right, now as far as the questions that I asked, uh, I do not have any correct answers so far, and I'm surprised that I do not have a correct answer to my question of the number of heart symbols that you can see in a deck of cards. Not the number of cards in the suit of hearts, which of course is 13. I mean, there are 13 uh, spades, 13 hearts, 13 diamonds, 13 clubs, etc. That's not what I was asking about. I say that if you were to spread a deck of cards in front of you, how many hearts would you see? All right, so uh, go ahead, get that pack of cards, spread it in front of you and count the number of hearts. Or, of course, you can also figure it out without having to look at the cards. And I do not yet have a correct answer to my question about what substance officers of the court in China were required to carry in their mouth when addressing the emperor. Want to know the answer to, to that one? And neither do I yet have a correct answer to my other question about immigrants coming to the U.S. through Ellis Island. They were examined by doctors for trachoma. What part of the body were the doctors examining? Ellis Island, of course, is a very, very interesting place. It, it is in the um, uh, New York Harbor. I mean, right in the shadow of, uh, of the Statue of Liberty. And that was a place where ships would dock uh, when the immigrants came to the U.S., of course, in the late 1800s and uh, uh, I think right up to the 1950s. Uh, today, Ellis Island is, is a museum, uh, very much like uh, Pier 23 here in, uh, in Halifax, which is, incidentally is very interesting and well worth seeing. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times. Of course, I do have an attachment to that emotionally because that is where I, I landed in Canada in, uh, in 1956 with a, a ship called the TSS New York. We came from Bremenhaven in, in Ger Germany. Uh, in December through the North Atlantic. I can tell you that that was not a joyous journey. 
it was a small ship. I mean, I, I don't know, something like 20,000 tons, which of course was a minnow in comparison to the uh, giant cruise ships uh, today. So it uh, certainly was buffeted around by the waves. And uh, I remember being sick virtually for uh, for the whole trip. Anyway, we landed in, in Halifax and were processed there by the officers and um, got on the train. And uh, the train was right across uh, from the exit from pier, uh, from the pier and uh, on our way to Montreal, where my aunt, who had come uh, earlier to Canada, was, uh, was waiting. And uh, I remember it was a pretty long train journey from Halifax to, to Montreal. I don't remember much about it, except that um, I also had my first Canadian delicacy on that train, which was an omelette made from powdered eggs, something I had never heard of since. And obviously had never tasted before and indeed have never tasted since, certainly not to my uh, knowledge. And um, when we got to Montreal, it was at the old train station, um, which uh, I think now has become a, a Provigo, uh, just sort of off, uh, off Jean Talon. I mean, the building is still there, but I, I don't, don't really know what is inside. It's not a train station anymore. And um, I remember walking out of that train station, and you know, still crystal clear in my mind, uh, I can remember that so well, even though it was 1956, because I can't remember what happened yesterday as well. But, and I remember coming out of that uh, train station and seeing all of these beautiful colored lights and the Christmas trees and all of the decorations. And that, of course, was something uh, totally new to me because in uh, communist Hungary, uh, Christmas was not celebrated in that fashion. I mean, there certainly were no lights of, of, uh, of any kind and uh, it was pretty uh, drab. And I'd never seen anything like that. And I remember you know, when uh, my aunt picked us up and uh, drove us home to her house, which was that time on Van Horn. Uh, there were these Christmas decorations everywhere. And my head just kept turning from side to side to see all of this uh, glorious light. And just to, to uh, finish off that uh, trip down memory lane, uh, my aunt actually had a restaurant in Montreal. It was called the Riviera. If any of you remember the Riviera, I'd, I'd really be happy to hear from you and to talk with you uh, at 514-790-800. Give, give me a call. I'd really like to hear that. It was on Stanley Street. It isn't there anymore. Uh, it was in the same building that after housed the William Tell uh, restaurant. Now I think it's uh, that building was knocked down. It was replaced by a large um, uh, office building. So anyway, she had a, a European restaurant there, the, the Riviera. It was the first restaurant in Montreal that had a built-in television set in the wall. And uh, in those days, uh, <laughs> there were only two channels. There was a CBC uh, television before. And I remember also the first program that I saw in Canada was Kiddie's Corner, which uh, started at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
And uh, after that, uh, I still remember this was Open House with uh, Anna Cameron. Uh, and uh, the programming stopped at 11 o'clock night back in those days, television programming. So anyway, uh, we went to her restaurant, the Riviera, and I even remember my first meal. And I can tell you it was a lot better than the powdered eggs. It was a uh, Wiener schnitzel that was hanging off the plate. So there's a little bit of memory for, <laughs> for me and for you about uh, coming to Canada in December of... Uh, 1956, and uh, actually uh, the date was, uh, it was December 21st, so uh, it's going to be an anniversary in a couple of days. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. And I do have a correct answer to my question about the number of heart symbols in a deck of cards. And I'm surprised by the large number of wrong answers that I've had. The answer is 87, 87. How so? Well, just think of the ace of hearts. It has one heart in the middle and one heart in each of the corners. So the ace of hearts actually has three heart symbols on it. The two of hearts has two hearts in the middle, plus a heart in each corner. So that has four. And if you add it all up, you see 87 heart symbols in a deck of cards. All right, now you can go out and use that as a bar bet or ask your friends if they can add up the number of heart symbols in deck of cards. And uh, by what I see here, they are very likely to get the, uh, the wrong answer. All right, so I am still looking for the answer about what officers of the court had to carry in their mouth when addressing the emperor in China. But I did get a correct answer for my question about the immigrants coming to the U.S. to Ellis Island, where they were examined by doctors for trachoma. And the question was, what part of the body did they examine? And the answer, as uh, was correctly stated by one of our correspondents here, is the eyes. Trachoma is an infectious disease. It's caused by bacterium, chlamydia trachomatis. And the infection causes this, this roughening on the inner surface of the eyelids. And that can be very painful. It can cause breakdown of the outer surface of the cornea. And... Uh, it can also cause blindness if it is untreated. And uh, it uh, can be treated. It is treated uh, with antibiotics, like oral azithromycin or topical tetracycline. But the reason that the, uh, the doctors in Ellis Island look for it is because it is highly contagious. And uh, it usually uh, comes when there's um, improper hygiene, as would have been in the case on many of the ships that were bringing immigrants over from uh, Europe. It very often affected children because they would be touching their eyes all the time and uh, using uh, uh, fabrics uh, that were not all that clean. There was an absence of, of toilets or if enough toilets on the ship. 
uh, and there was a lot of crowding, and those are actually the kind of scenarios that give rise to to rather uh, uh, easy spread of bacterial infections. And uh, the presence of dirty faces on children uh, facilitated, you know, this uh, uh, infection uh, rate. So that's what they were checking for. Trachoma is a bacterial disease of the eye, and uh, immigrants coming to Ellis Island were being checked for, for that. All right, uh, since that was correctly answered, uh, here's another one uh, for you. What would you be treated with if you were, if you were undergoing lithotherapy? <clears throat> if you were undergoing lithotherapy, what, you, what would you be treated with? Give us a call at 514-790-800. Or uh, you can text to 514-800. Okay, um, Arthur, I think, is on the line with an answer for my uh, question about the Chinese emperor and his court. Arthur. Yes, it was uh, cloves. Yes, exactly. It was cloves. And do you know why? Well, uh, well, it stops the, uh, I guess the, the the smell from the uh, from their breath, yes, and it yeah. also numbs your uh, gums if you have a tooth problem. Yeah, cloves uh, to prevent the exalted emperor from being exposed to bad breath, and uh, those courtesans who had a toothache, as you suggested, discovered the anesthetic properties of cloves. Uh, indeed, its active ingredient, it's a chemical called eugenol is still used by dentists to swab the gum before giving a needle. And uh, clove's potent smell made the spice a much-desired commodity when the plague devastated Europe. It was widely believed that the disease was spread by breathing bad air, and cloves were thought to be able to purify the stench. Aristocrats and doctors carried pomanders made by poking cloves into dried oranges to ward off the plague. This notion gave rise to the tradition of using potpourri to scent houses. So explorers like Columbus and Vasco da Gama sailed the oceans in search of cloves and other spices. But cloves were especially prized. Many people believed in the doctrine of signatures, which stated that um, any substance that resembled part of the human body should have some beneficial effect on that part of the, uh, of the body. And since cloves are the only spice shaped like the most characteristic feature of the male anatomy, they were believed to have aphrodisiac properties. So there you go. Now you know why cloves were uh, required to be uh, in the mouth of people who were going to address the emperor. You know, we had some very sad news, right? A couple of weeks ago with the death of Matthew Perry, who had starred on, on Friends. And uh, now we find out that uh, ketamine may have been involved in his uh, death. Uh, ketamine uh, was developed in the 1960s as an anesthetic, both for humans and animals. And today it is uh, used, it shows some uh, promise in the treatment of depression. And of course, it is also sometimes used as a psychedelic party drug, uh, but that uh, obviously is not sanctioned for, for that use by Health Canada or by uh, FDA. And it's been tied to the death of Matthew Perry. Um, 
it seems uh, he was found uh, accidentally drowned in his bathroom in his Los Angeles home. And uh, the autopsy report showed the presence of uh, ketamine in his uh, bloodstream. Now, it's, it's not clear exactly you know, how uh, it got there, because while he was treated with ketamine for depression, uh, ketamine has a relatively short lifetime in, in the body. And uh, his uh, treatment would have been a while before the, uh, the accident. Uh, of course, he may have just uh, self-administered some uh, ketamine. That's, uh, that's a possibility. Uh, it's available as a nasal spray. And uh, uh, unfortunately, it is used by some people to uh, have a, because of its potential to deliver a psychedelic effect. But anything that can deliver a psychedelic effect can also have uh, consequences. Now, whether or not uh, the ketamine uh, caused uh, Matthew Perry's death directly, or it just uh, somehow caused him to, to slide under the water and, and uh, the, the result of in his drowning, uh, it's not clear. And whether or not he may have used ketamine just before he died uh, also has not been determined. But it's uh, another example how a substance like ketamine can be used for benefit, which of course it can. As I said, it now has potential as a treatment for depression. Uh, but um, if it is improperly used, it can also have uh, very, very tragic uh, consequences. But uh, it is, uh, as I said, it is a, a drug that is uh, used as an anesthetic. And when it is used as an anesthetic, properly administered by uh, anesthetists or, or, of course, by veterinarians, it can be very useful. But I'm sure that we will hear more about Matthew Perry's case and uh, maybe they'll be able to determine if he was... Um, using ketamine in an inappropriate uh, fashion, uh, fashion. All right, uh, so uh, I'm looking for what you would be treated with if you were undergoing lithotherapy, not thermotherapy, lithotherapy. Lithotherapy, what would be used if you're going to undergo this kind of, uh, of treatment? Uh, someone was also asking online whether Rogaine actually works. Uh, Rogaine, the active ingredient of that is a drug called minoxidil, uh, which you either rub on the neck, on the head, or you can take it orally. And it is uh, actually effective in causing hair growth, although it is not extremely effective. There are some people who are happy with uh, minoxidil and what it does for your scalp. Uh, most people, when questioned, uh, say that uh, uh, they are not as happy as they thought that they would be. Yes, it does cause some hair growth, but in most cases, it is not, uh, not the kind of hair growth that will cover up a, a bald scalp. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Greedy milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar, hey, all right. calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calciumate, soybean oil, butter, butter.
I did get a correct answer to the question of what you would be treated with if you were undergoing lithotherapy. The answer is crystals. Litho is the Greek word for stone and practitioners of crystal healing. Well, they believe that they can boost low energy, they can prevent bad energy, whatever that may be. Uh, they can open up your chakras, they can transform your body's aura, all silliness, of course. Uh, crystals, no matter how pretty they may be, do not do anything like that. Sleeping with crystals under your pillow is not going to improve impure your health. Putting crystals on your body while you're lying down is not going to open up your energy channels. Uh, if you feel anything, uh, what you'll be feeling is the placebo effect. The reason that I actually asked this question is because uh, this was in the news this week here in, in Montreal, where apparently in the Montreal Children's Hospital, uh, in the um, uh, oncology department, there are books that the children can read. And one of the books was all about crystal healing and the benefits that it may have. And uh, when this was brought to the doctor's attention, they decided to remove that book because uh, it basically gave false hope to, to people. Okay, so we do have a correct answer to, to that one, uh, which prompts me to ask you another question. The bladder of what fish are people in China willing to pay exorbitant sums for with the belief that it can boost fertility, improve circulation, revitalize the skin, and increase longevity? So I'm looking for the fish, the bladder of which supposedly has these miraculous effects. And of course, you know what I feel about these miracles. They do not uh, exist. Okay, I think we have um, uh, Peter on the line who has a question. Peter. Hi, Dr. Joe. Um, Hi. Thank you for sharing some of your personal history with us. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I also enjoyed your talk about Michael Faraday. I have a question for you about uh, Ernest Rutherford. Um, I'm wondering, during what years was he working at McGill? Actually, I'll just fire off a whole bunch of questions, and I'll, I'll get off the line because I know we don't have much time left. Uh, what years well, was he no, we, no, researching? Go ahead. I mean, I, I enjoy talking about Rutherford. Okay. Um, and, uh, he what was, was the uh, nature of his research? And have you personally ever visited his lab? And is there a memorial to his work? Yes, there is. Actually, we, we have a, a little uh, Rutherford Museum in the physics building, uh, which includes some of the equipment that he used when, um, when he was here. He was here in the uh, early 1900s. He was the head of uh, the physics department, actually. Originally, he was uh, from New Zealand. Uh, but then he was in England from where he came here and eventually went back to, to England. Of course, he was a Nobel Prize winner, but the the, the work Nobel for Prize which he got the Nobel Prize, uh, the work for which he got the Nobel Prize was actually not done at McGill. That that was done in the UK. It was done at Cambridge, and that was this classic experiment where he showed that an atom actually was mostly empty space with the mass concentrated in the nucleus. All the protons and neutrons were in the nucleus and circulating about those was the electron. And uh, that work was done in um, 
uh, in England. But the work uh, that he did here at McGill was was uh, equally important because it was here that he unraveled the mysteries of radioactivity. Uh, radioactivity had been accidentally discovered uh, by uh, Becquerel in France. And of course, the uh, Marie and Pierre Curie experimented with it. But it was Rutherford who really explained what was going on. It was Rutherford who, who um, uh, discovered that radioactivity actually occurred when uh, atoms of certain elements spontaneously broke down. So uranium, of course, was a, a classic example because when it breaks down, uh, it releases uh, uh, alpha particles, beta rays, etc. It transforms into other elements with the release of, of energy. So Rutherford really laid the, the, the path for Fermi and Szilard and Teller and, of course, Oppenheimer to take the next steps towards exploring the potential of, uh, of nuclear reactions. So he was, certainly was... Uh, uh, extremely important in the history of chemistry, in the history of physics, in the history of, of nuclear energy, and then also in unraveling the the structure of the uh, of the atom. Uh, the interesting thing, at least one of the interesting things about Rutherford, is that um, he was a physicist, and he always uh, considered himself to be a physicist. But he was awarded the Nobel Prize in chemistry, <laughs> even though you know he he wasn't really a, a chemist. And uh, although he is credited with being the first one to transform one element into the other, uh, he quipped that the most amazing transformation that he had ever carried out was his transformation uh, from a physicist to a chemist, because that's where he got the Nobel Prize. So, yeah, he was a very interesting uh, personality. And, of course, he's the pride of New Zealand, uh, pride of England, pride of Canada, and, of course, the pride of McGill University. Did he personally inspire you to study chemistry at McGill? No, he didn't. No, okay. uh, I had different different ins inspirations. But uh, uh, I certainly, of course, uh, uh, proud of the fact that uh, he worked at McGill and, and he is associated with uh, with McGill. So, yeah. And uh, like I said, you know, the little uh, Rutherford Museum uh, is worth seeing. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's the equipment that he used back in those days to study radioactivity. So it's very interesting. What makes you interested in Rutherford? Oh, I just heard his, his name on the radio a few weeks ago and I, I started to, to Google him. Yeah, he's um, a, a fascinating personality, and uh, of course he gets, as I said, he gets you know credit for transmutation and for radioactivity. But I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there were many other people involved in all in all of that. I mean, major discoveries are are, are never made by you know single person alone. It's always building on what others had done before. So he was very aware of the, the work of J.J. Thompson in England about uh, atoms, who, and Thompson had discovered the electron. Uh, uh, obviously, he was aware of the work of John Dalton, who had described atoms as you know being sort of round, indivisible uh, particles. Uh, and uh, Rutherford just managed to push all of these theories you know further. And um, 
so anyway, the, let me just finish up by saying if you do get a chance to visit the physics department here, uh, take a look at the uh, Rutherford uh, Museum. I'm not sure if it's open all the time or if you have to make an appointment to uh, to visit it. Okay, I'll, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find that out, and I'll, I'll on a subsequent show maybe I'll bring it up again. Okay, okay it's, but it's nice to hear of your interest in Rutherford. Yeah, <laughs> okay. thank you very much, Doctor Joe. Okay, well that's uh, that's about it for today. Uh, I guess we did not get around to. Uh, getting an answer for the question that I had about the bladder of the fish uh, for which people in China are willing to pay exorbitant sums because they believe that it can boost fertility, improve circulation, revitalize the skin and increase longevity. Well, I spoke too soon because a text answer has just come in and it is correct. It is the Toto Aba fish. And, uh, it is uh, unfortunately an endangered species endemic to the uh, uh, Gulf of California and Mexico, and the bladder can fetch $450 to $1,000 per kilogram. And uh, no one should be buying this because the fish is endangered. And of course, the claims that they make about the collagen constituent of its bladder being a miraculously healing thing is just nonsense. Well, that's it. We have run out of time today. We've had all of our answers, which is great. Back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.